creating a life worth living. And so what I mean by that is there's so many things you could do with your life. There's so many variations and components of life, but does it feel like it's worth living for you? And if it does, awesome, we're on the right track. But if it doesn't, then maybe that's where we need to get some support in. And it might be just certain areas don't feel like they're necessarily worth living or they don't feel like they're you're living them in the way that you want to live them. And those could be the areas that we work on. So there's so many options and so much capacity and capability to work with someone with BPD, no matter how many times they've been kind of through the system, pushed between different clinicians or family members or friends or partners or whatever it might be. There are options. It's just finding someone who you feel safe with and who you feel like can actually get you and actually want to get you as well too. Massive welcome to the podcast, Shamelessly Human. I am so freaking excited that you are here. This podcast is for you, the human who is so sick of buying in to this story that you're not good enough, that there's a right way to be human, that somehow those quirks, those perks, those imperfections that make you you are something that you need to hide from the world. This podcast is here to teach you that you are already good enough, that those parts of you that you've been hiding, that you've been making wrong, they are what make you freaking awesome. And this is your time to shine and have those parts of you come to life in this world. In this podcast, you will learn tools and strategies to support you in being the awesome flavor of human that I know you can be. If you have been sitting on the sidelines of life, if you have been buying into this belief that everybody else comes first, or that in order to do anything, you have to be a certain way, look a certain way, act a certain way. You know, this is for you. This podcast is going to be your full permission to start rocking up as yourself. You know, as a clinical psychologist for almost 20 years, the struggle that I see from pretty much most of my clients is just this belief that their experience of life, their experience of being human is wrong, that there's something about them that they need to fix, delete or get rid of in order to have a life of happiness and to just be doing the things that they want to do. And it's just simply not true. If you are experiencing something, then guess what? Some other human on this planet is also experiencing the same thing. This podcast will bring you real, raw conversations from other humans so that you get to see that life is about being messy. It's about not getting it right. It's about feeling anxious, stuffing things up. It's about being weird, being quirky, being different. You know, how boring would this world be if we were all the freaking same? This podcast is about you. This podcast is for you. This podcast will teach you how to live your life 
shamelessly being human. So if you are ready and if you are willing to shake things up, then I am here to support you in your growth and your journey in being human. All right, everyone, let's go. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to talk with you about a really important topic, actually. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. There's not enough education in the world on BPD, so I'm really keen to just be able to hopefully fill some of those questions and fill some of that gap there. It'd be amazing. Can you start, though, by introducing yourself and what you do? Would that be okay? Of course, yeah. So my name is Dr. Talia Hashworth. I am a clinical psychologist and I'm the director of a private practice called Hashworth Psychology. We are located in Wollongong, uh, just on Crown Street Mall, also in the center of Wollongong. Um, a little bit about me. I, so I'm a clinical psychologist, as I mentioned. I'm originally from Canada, so I've moved here about five years ago. Um, so it's been, yeah, a really big five years. I just recently finished a PhD. Um, I, in that PhD, I'd studied BPD, so borderline personality disorder, and I looked at uh, the role of personal agency, so it looks at control, which I could talk a little bit about more later. Um, so it's a really interesting PhD. So it's a big area that I love to talk about. I love to work in. And most of my clinical practice is in BPD as well, too, and trauma. Mm-hmm. So Hashford Psychology has three specialized niche areas, and they are BPD, and other personality disorders, trauma, including PTSD and complex trauma, and the LGBTQI community. So we work in those three areas, and it's work I love to do both clinically and research-wise. So I'm really keen to be here and to talk more about it today. Awesome. So I guess what might be a beautiful start is just to talk a little bit about what like borderline personality disorder is, because I think there's also a lot of misconceptions about just that starting point, really. That's exactly it. Yeah, there's so much stigma and misunderstanding around it. So I think that's a really good starting question. So borderline personality disorder is a mental health diagnosis. Um, It's come from the DSM-5, which is a diagnostic and statistical manual, the fifth version. In that, as you would know, Sky is the kind of Bible that psychologists use to yeah. diagnose and understand different presentations. So borderline personality disorder is one of them. And throughout our talk today, I'll refer to it either as borderline personality disorder or PPD when they just use it interchangeably. But it is a mental health presentation where it, it encompasses a whole range of different presentations. For example, we've got... Um, difficulties with interpersonal relationships so it could be really intense or unstable relationships um we've got lack of sense of identity and what that basically means is people have a hard time kind of understanding who they are what they like even what their hobbies are who they want to be in their current and future life as well too um so that's that kind of uh self sense of self-based aspect that becomes really challenging There are other factors for people with BPD, like impulsivity in some situations, and that can include sex or intimacy, substances, disordered eating, money, a whole range of that kind of impulsive behavior there. And of course, as I'm going through these, this doesn't apply to every single person with BPD. These are just some of the general things we tend to see. Um, Some of the other things we see are fears of abandonment. So being really scared that partners or friends or even family members are going to leave and abandon us, whether there's reason to or not. And by that, I mean, whether there's been a fight or a disagreement, or even if it just feels like there's that perceived uh, fear of abandonment. Um, Yeah, big changes in emotions, um, self-harm, suicidal ideation. So there's a whole range of different kinds of presentations there. I think that's what's so complicated about BPD, that it can affect our relationships can affect how we see ourselves. It can affect our attachment style. It can affect how we 
sometimes show up at work or in other social settings. So it has such a big impact on such a different range of areas or domains in our life, which means it can be really confusing and complicated to understand as well too. Because mm. I think um, I think sometimes people may not understand the difference between like a personality disorder and like a mental like a mental health disorder. Like, can you explain a little bit like what what that means in terms of someone presenting for you? Definitely, yeah. So a personality disorder is categorized as a mental health disorder. What it essentially means and how it differs from a mental health disorder um, in some ways is like a mental health disorder, for example, like depression or anxiety. That's something that you can kind of go into treatment, you can get some support in and a lot of the time you can leave treatment and by treatment, I mean therapy, you can leave therapy no longer meeting criteria for that diagnosis, that presentation. Whereas with personality disorders, you don't always necessarily end therapy without that diagnosis. It's kind of one of those things that lives with us in similar ways to neurodivergent presentations like ADHD and autism. No matter how much work you do, it doesn't mean that you're always in active phases of the disorder, the diagnosis, but it does mean that it's one of those things that kind of sticks around with us in some ways and kind of goes through up and downs and waves through life. Even though some periods might be better, we might be recovering. That diagnosis isn't something that um, necessarily gets kind of leaves once we get that treatment done. So I guess that's a difference between a kind of standard mental health disorder like depression or anxiety and a personality disorder that's a little bit more kind of long term and pervasive in some ways. And how would you describe the link between like trauma and developing like borderline personality disorder? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So a huge chunk of my PhD was actually on this particular topic. So I find it really interesting personally. Um, but essentially, previously, historically, there used to be a requirement to obtain a diagnosis of BPD. You have to have a, a trauma history or a diagnosis of PTSD. Mm-hmm. That's no longer actually the requirement. So that's been debunked. However, there is a lot of research to indicate that there's still high comorbidity between uh, BPD and trauma. So that means the two often go hand in hand together. That you'd no longer need a requirement of uh, a trauma history to obtain a diagnosis of BPD, but they do often go hand in hand together. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And that kind of comes into the, what we call the biosocial theory of BPD, which is the overlying and um, overarching kind of theoretical view of how we understand BPD. Would you like me to go into yeah, that now? Yeah, can you explain that? That would be amazing. Yeah, sure. So the biosocial theory is a theory uh, that was developed way back when, when they started using dialectal behavioral therapy, which is a gold standard approach for BPD, which I will talk about uh, shortly as well too. But the the premise of the biosocial theory is that there's a combination of genetic factors and environmental factors that lead to BPD or presentations of BPD. And what that basically means is there's some hereditable factors, like there could be things like um, increased sensitivity as a genetic factor, temperament, those kind of factors, as well as environmental factors like invalidation, uh, like poor modeling of how to deal with emotions, high stress environments. So that's kind of one section of that is the genetic and the biological component. And the other section is the environmental social component. Why trauma is often in the same viewpoint with BPD is because the invalidation, the environmental aspect is often quite traumatic for individuals. So what invalidation essentially means is the idea that we get dismissed for emotions and we get kind of put down for it. And so it's those kind of classic sayings that we often hear in the media as well of, 
Um, for example, like, oh, don't cry, I'll give you something to cry about or, um, you know, be a real man and put those tears away and all of those kind of statements there that are what we call invalidating and actually dismiss and shut down an individual's experience of emotions. So when these situations happen, especially when they happen repeatedly over time, they become quite traumatic. And so in that sense, in itself, trauma is often a part of the presentation of BPD. However, not every single person has the environmental aspect because they might have that larger kind of biological or genetic factor there. Mm -hmm. So if we're looking at a biosocial theory, we want that combination of environment and biology, but it doesn't mean it has to be a traumatic environment there. It could be... Um, like a, a high stress environment that isn't necessarily traumatic, but it's difficult to experience, or it could be uh, challenges with learning or school as well too, which not, aren't necessarily traumatic to the individual, but are also quite challenging as well too. So it doesn't need to be there, but it often is there as a result of that environmental component of the biosocial theory. So if somebody is feeling like that they might have borderline personality disorder, like how do they go about being diagnosed with that? Yeah, so there are a few different ways to get diagnosed. One thing to note is if you want to seek a diagnosis to make sure the, the you're seeking one an appropriate mental health professional and a mental health professional who has experience and has some awareness of the nuances of BPD because it can be complicated and complex. So I think that's kind of the first preface I want to add there that make sure you actually get the right diagnosis from the right person. But yeah. two, once you get to that point, there's different ways. So you can do like clinical interviews. So the psychologist can, or the mental health practitioner can um, address questions in a certain way to look at your history, look, look at your triggers, how you're responding to situations, what kind of relationships you have. Because if you remember some of the symptoms of BPD are those interpersonal relationships and those intense and unstable relationships as well too. So we can look at it kind of in a clinical interview way. We can also use uh, questionnaires to supplement that. And a lot of the questionnaires are self-report. So we don't want to rely solely on them, but we can use them as an additional factor. And those questionnaires can be... Um, a few different ones, but there's one called MSI BPD. Um, there's the McLean screener. So there's a few different ones there that look at the what we consider the standard symptoms of BPD and look at how kind of frequently they apply. A questionnaire I used in my PhD for my um, research participants was one called the BPD checklist. And it's got about 40 something questions. And it basically has a list of questions and asks you how often you relate to them over the last month. So I really like that questionnaire particularly because it doesn't just look at the you know, the uh, classic symptoms and expect you to say yes or no. There's a lot of nuance in it as well, too, to show how often were you, for example, impulsive with money or sex or busy or something else, or um, how often did you uh, engage in suicidal behaviors? And so it looks at things a bit more in a range. So we'd be looking at, yeah, clinical interview with supplementing factors like screeners and self-report questionnaires. And if there is a partner or a friend or family member who knows you well, it'd be awesome to have them part of the assessment diagnosis just to get some collateral and additional information as well. Yeah. And you mentioned DBT in there as well. So if, if they kind of go through that process and there's a diagnosis, that's the gold standard of treatment. Can you tell people a little bit about what that is? Definitely. So DBT stands for dialectical behavior therapy. It is an approach that actually, um, that's where the biosocial theory actually came from. It came from DBT. So 
It's an approach that has always been considered the gold standard approach for DBT. There are other approaches, which I'll touch on as well, too. But DBT specifically has four modules. And so what the modules basically are, they're basically like chapters, the different kind of areas to focus on in DBT. And they include, in no particular order, but they include mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance, and emotion regulation. And what that basically means, uh, these are four key areas that research has identified people with BPD tend to struggle with. And so it targets them pretty directly. And what I really like about DBT is it's a skill-based approach. It's very practical. It's very realistic. It's, this is exactly kind of how you deal with the situation. Try it out, see what works for you. And then let's come back and then we'll workshop it together. Yeah. And so DBT can be implemented individually through one-on-one -on -one settings or in group therapy settings. And so at our practice, we do run DBT groups as well. We're currently running an online group right now and our next intake is in January. So it's something we're constantly doing. Um, and yeah, it's a really effective approach. I'll touch briefly on those four modules um, just to give you uh, others an idea of kind of what they look like. So the mindfulness module is basically teaching us skills to learn how to connect with ourselves. That can be grounding, that can be um, honing in our self-awareness, that can be learning more about our body and how our body responds to triggers in different situations. There's an interpersonal effectiveness uh, module, which looks at learning how to communicate effectively. And effectively is an important word we use a lot in DBT because effectively does not equate to what necessarily feels right or wrong as well, too. Oh, okay. So, Explain what you mean by that. Yeah. So sometimes in situations, it can feel like um, this is a situation that's really triggering for me. And this is kind of how I want to respond. But it doesn't necessarily mean that's the most effective response for us in our present and in our future selves. So it really looks at kind of um, overriding the impulse and the urge in a lot of situations and looking at how do we best respond for ourselves, but also for our relationships as well, too. And so in the interpersonal effectiveness model, we look at how to set boundaries. We look at how to say no to requests. We look at how to build that self-respect, but we also look at how to build empathy and compassion in our relationships as well too. So it's a focus both on ourselves, but also on the other person, if we choose to maintain those relationships as well. Yeah. And then we have the emotion regulation and the distress tolerance model modules. So emotion regulation teaches us skills, basically how to keep our emotions regulated, how to keep them managed, how to keep them at bay, how to keep us kind of feeling as good as we can in ourselves. Whereas the dist distress tolerance module is more about crisis management. So when situations are heightened and escalated, how do we then deal with them? So it's really quite practical strategies on this is exactly kind of what we try and do. It doesn't mean it's going to happen right away. It doesn't mean it's going to yeah. be mastered overnight, but it teaches us quite a good framework and guideline for how to actually look at some of those um, crisis situations that come up. That's cool. And did you say there's some other different therapies that you use as well? Yeah, definitely. So myself personally, I am an EMDR therapist. So EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It's a very long word. So we tend to call it EMDR therapy, but it's a trauma-based therapy. And so I mentioned before that trauma doesn't always come hand in hand with BPD. However, I use it regardless of whether there's a trauma background or not when I work with someone with BPD, because even if there isn't a trauma history, you can still use EMDR and trauma therapy to address some of the triggers. So if there's, for example, a fear of abandonment there, then we can address some of the triggers that come up when uh, we're starting to feel heightened. So it could be we don't hear from our partner for X amount of time, or it could be after an argument, or it could be um, 
just knowing that our partners are with their friends or their family members. Any of those situations can trigger someone with a fear of abandonment and many other situations too. So we could actually look at some of those exact situations and triggers using EMDR therapy and work on changing our body's response to them. So we're not actually getting to that point of being as heightened in those situations. So even though it's not, it doesn't, it may or may not feel traumatic, we can actually use trauma therapy to address those specific behaviors as well. So EMDR is a approach I use quite a bit. And there's a fair bit of research that's been developing for BPD as well, which is really great. And the other approach I use a lot is schema therapy. And a component of schema therapy there is we look at something called limited reparenting. So again, highlighting that trauma isn't always a necessity for BPD. There's often that invalidation component, not always, but often. And so we can do something called limited reparenting where we can connect with those vulnerable parts of our childhood that still exist, whether we're a child or an adult. And we can look at, look at building kind of trust and safe relationships there and doing some of that more inner child work. So that's also had a lot of schema therapies had a lot of research as well for BPD and a lot of effectiveness as well there. So there's a combination of a few, myself being an EMDR therapist, I actually use all three of them. So a big component of EMDR is what we call a preparation and stabilization phase. And what that basically is, is we look at really workshopping the, and fine tuning the skills and the strategies that the individual has. And so when we have that phase of treatment, then I bring in a lot of DBT skills. I bring in a lot of schema therapy and that inner child work. So that's a lot of the preparation work I actually use for EMDR, which personally I think is quite effective because we're targeting both skills, but also the deeper trauma-based or trigger-based responses as well too. So listening to all that, like, what do you think might be some of the challenges for people with BPT to actually get to that point to see you to be able to do some of the work? Stigma is one of the biggest ones there. So stigma applies in so many different presentations, but applies so much here because people with BPD often end up being told throughout their life that they're too much and they just, they're they're too dramatic or they're too impulsive, they're too extreme or they're a roller coaster or any of these statements that often come up, which if you're told that, even once, let alone multiple times, it's going to make you not want to actually do something about it and feel like you are actually in control of doing that. So I feel like stigma is a really big aspect of not being able to seek appropriate supports. But I also feel like there is a lot of misdiagnosis that comes with BPD as well too. So even if someone's well engaged in treatment, they, they may not end up actually having the correct diagnosis of BPD and they may end up having a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, for example, which often goes, um, gets misdiagnosed with BPD as well too. If that's the case, they might end up on lithium and the um, medication side of things, as opposed to the skills-based treatment that they might need for BPD. So that's also a really big factor as well of not getting the right supports, unfortunately. Do you find any pattern in comorbidity? Like, because I know you're talking about misdiagnosis then, but what about comorbidity? Like, what do you notice for people with BPD? Yeah, so with BPD, I always find it quite interesting because usually when a person comes to me for BPD, they've generally had a whole laundry basket of uh, diagnoses that they've already come with. And most of them aren't necessarily accurate. Usually BPD or complex trauma can actually um, explain all of those rather than individual diagnoses, BPD or complex trauma can usually just explain everything in itself. So the comorbid diagnoses we often see are depression, anxiety, substance use, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes OCD as well too, um, especially with the 
the rule-based thinking and the the extremes and the black and white thinking that can often come in OCD. Other things that you often see is our neurodivergent presentations as well yeah. too. So you so often see ADHD and autism, particularly to be comorbid with BPD, and especially in people who identify as women, they tend to get um, missed for most of life, and they don't really come up if at all till adulthood as well too. So this person has lived with both BPD and some sort of neurodivergence that's been both missed, unfortunately, through a significant period of time. Mm. One question as you were talking there comes up a lot with clients and I'd love if you can kind of help me with the answer too is that um, like we hear the word complex trauma or complex PTSD and we also hear borderline personality disorder and I think people get like are they the same are they different like what does that mean for the person listening? Yeah that's a really good question so there's a massive debate in the field of research and clinicians all together on is complex trauma and BPD the same thing or are they two different things? honestly each clinician is going to have a different approach to it my personal approach to it is I believe they're actually two different things Mm -hmm. and so what I mean by that is I believe someone with complex trauma presents in very similar ways but quite different ways to someone with BPD and some of the specific areas that I'd be looking at to help me differentiate between the two are are the triggers more about interpersonal situations so what I mean by that is is the person getting heightened usually as a result of a relationship, whether it's a friendship or a family relationship or a partnership? If so, that usually veers us more towards the BPD perspective. Someone with complex trauma isn't necessarily going to be triggered by the one-on-one interactions with people. They're not going to have that because they're not going to have that fear of abandonment in the same kind of way. They're not going to have those intense emotions in the same kind of way. So that's usually one indicator that I look at. Another one I look at is even though BPD and complex trauma do go hand in hand, the the BPD component doesn't actually have, usually doesn't have the classic PTSD symptoms as well too. So it doesn't necessarily have the nightmares. It doesn't have the avoidance of memories. It doesn't have the um, hypervigilance in the same way that a complex trauma presentation would have. So on the outside, when you're first meeting someone, they can look almost identical but once you get kind of to the nitty-gritty once you kind of get to see the triggers once you get to see the exact kind of symptoms what a day in this person's life actually looks like that's when I feel like you can start differentiating between the two and that's my opinion again some people think that everything is complex trauma everything is BPD and they're exactly the same but based on my work and what I've kind of seen in my clients I can generally see the difference between the two and a lot of people or at least a portion of people are diagnosed with both complex trauma and BPD. And that can also apply as well too if you do have symptoms of both presentations there. If you're enjoying these conversations, we would love to have you in our Facebook group community, Shamelessly Human. This is a space where we all come together to laugh, to grow, and to really just embrace the messiness of life together. So come and hang out, Shamelessly Human, the Facebook group, And remember, when you jump on in, please be sure to introduce yourself so that we get to see you as well. You mentioned a lot about your research. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about your research and and your interest in BPD? Yeah, sure. So with my research, um, yes, I mentioned at the start about personal agency and locus of control. And so what that essentially is, this concept where it looks at how much people feel like they have control over the outcomes in their life 
So how much autonomy they have, how much ownership they have, and that includes over their emotions and their behaviors, um, their work, their relationships, all of those factors versus how much we feel like is a result of usually a few different components of uh, chance, luck, or fate. And so we usually see those three components as what we call external locus of control or low personal agency. They can be used um, interchangeably. And so someone with high agency or internal locus of control would be someone who feels like they, um, yeah, they've got a lot of control over themselves. They have accountability. They um, they want something to happen. So they're going to work for that thing to happen. They want to go to therapy. So they're going to start seeking out therapists, those kind of things. Whereas someone with external locus of control or um, or low personal agency would kind of have reasons why they feel like they can't achieve some of those um, goals that they might have. And a lot of the time they are really valid reasons, but a lot of the time they are coming from a place of helplessness as well too. So we've done some research on agency and BPD. And what we actually found was through three different studies actually, low personal agency, so that external um, locus of control, feeling like you don't have control over yourselves, is actually associated with higher BPD symptoms. So what that means is the more severe BPD symptoms are, usually that means the more severe we feel like, um, the more we feel like we have less control over ourselves, if that makes sense. So the less control we have over ourselves. It also relates to having more insecure attachments, so less secure relationships, uh, and again, friendships, partnerships, family relationships, and also worse mental health symptoms. So it's really interesting that the concept of agency, so how much control we feel like we have over ourselves, is associated with BPD symptoms, overall mental health symptoms, and also our attachment styles as well, too. So that's a really interesting kind of factor, and why I mentioned that is because a lot of treatment doesn't necessarily hone in enough on agency and how much agency the person has and on building that. And ways we can do that is, for example, homework setting, getting the client to complete homework and actually encouraging them and hoping that they actually do staying on top of them to complete that. In DBT, we use something called diary cards. So when we're going through a DBT, at least a group therapy program, we ask clients to record each day how they feel in a whole range of different things, how many skills they used in that day, which all leads to that accountability. And the goal of that, the hope of that is to increase one mindfulness, but two ownership over ourselves as well too. So a lot of therapy approaches, standard therapy and manualized therapy approaches don't actually target um, agency, which is a little bit in some ways counterintuitive because we're seeing the research is showing us that people with BPD need support with agency and the manualized approaches aren't always doing that in the way that we need it to. So the research isn't always actually in line with what we're necessarily doing in clinical work. The word that came up for me there when I was listening to, I really like was like empowerment, like really just empowering them to see that they, they have this kind of, I don't know, internal space where they can take some of the tools that they have and actually use them to make sense of their world or something like that. That's exactly it. Yeah. Empowerment is such an important thing. And if we can start to feel empowered, we can start to feel good about our choices, about our reactions, about the decisions we're making. And the more we reinforce that, the more we're going to want to actually take ownership of ourselves as well too. So it's a huge thing, that empowerment piece. I'm yeah, really glad you mentioned that. Yeah, I love that. The, the other thing that you mentioned in there is like attachment styles. And if somebody's not really sure what that means, like how would you kind of language that to someone, what an attachment style means? Yeah, that's a really good question. So attachment styles are basically understood as the type of relationship we have with another person. 
they, the research shows um, that there's, there is some room for change of attachment styles if we're actually actively working on them. But if we're not, like if we live our life kind of with one attachment style and we don't really do much about it, the research shows that generally that does stick with us for the most part throughout life. So if we choose to do something about it, we can see change and we do see change. But if we don't necessarily, it often stays with us. So there are four types of attachment styles. The first one, and again, not in any particular order, is secure attachment style. What that basically means is we have a positive view of ourselves. So we feel good about ourselves. And we also have a positive view of the other person, whoever that other person might be. So that's a secure attachment style where we feel good about ourselves and we feel good about the other person. The next one um, is something called preoccupied or anxious attachment style. And again, they're terms that are used interchangeably as well, too, depending on who you're talking to. Um, what that basically means there is someone with a preoccupied or anxious attachment style would have a negative view of themselves. So they feel like they're not good enough, for example. They feel like they're a burden. They feel like they're too much, but they have a very positive view of the other person. So they kind of idolize the other person. They kind of put them on pedestal and they kind of think that... Um, you know, I'm so lucky to have this particular person, but they're not lucky to have me. So that's the preoccupied or anxious attachment style. And then we have um, fearful attachment style. What that one basically means is similarly to the preoccupied attachment style, we hold again that negative view of ourselves. We don't feel great about ourselves. But in this situation, we also hold a negative view of the other person. So it's not that we idolize the other person. It's that I'm not good enough, but neither are you you're not good for me either so there's that kind of negatives on both sides there of the relationship so just to uh, recap secure attachment has a positive view of self and positive view of other preoccupied has a negative view of ourselves so a positive view of the other and fearful has a, a negative view of ourselves and a negative view of the other and the last one there is dismissive attachment style or avoidant attachment style what that one means, it's the actual flip of the fearful, where we actually have a positive view of ourselves, but a negative view of the other person. So we feel like we're actually doing our best. We're bringing our A game into this relationship, but the other person just isn't pulling their way there. We can't trust them. We can't rely on them. We can't depend on them because they're just not enough for us. So it's, it's, it's pretty complicated, but there are those four attachment styles. And the research has showed with BPD, at least, that preoccupied and fearful attachment styles are most highly comorbid with BPD and so what that means is that people with BPD tend to um, have that really negative view of themselves in either preoccupied or fearful attachment style but it just depends based on their upbringing and their experiences whether they're going to have a positive view of the partner or the other person and idolize them or feel like the other person also isn't enough and it's not even worth building that relationship with them but we do see that commonality with that negative view of self in both uh, preoccupied and fearful attachment style and also with BPD that we've seen in the research too. I guess the question that I have um, and it's about like your your clinical work as well is do you work with the families or the partners of people who live with someone with BPD because I think sometimes that dynamic in itself can become problematic and, and feed some of the symptoms right if we're not mindful. That's exactly it. Yeah, definitely. So historically, BPD wasn't diagnosed until the individual turned 18. Since then, though, there's been a lot of, again, research and indication to show that you can have an appropriate diagnosis with BPD prior to 18. And so as a result, I do work with a lot of kids and adolescents who present with symptoms of BPD or a full diagnosis of BPD. And especially in those cases, I work a lot with the family there. And it's 
it can be challenging because the family might not fully understand what's happening for the young person as well too. Um, and a lot of presentations, of course, but in BPD and there can be a lot of um, reinforcing, unintentional reinforcing of those beliefs that that individual has themselves, a feeling like they're too much or that they're a burden or um, they're just not good enough because their family and themselves can't even understand them or their friends sometimes as well too. So working with family and close loved ones is a huge part of the work because a, such a big component of BPD is impacted by relationships as well too. So if we're only working with the individual, we can definitely get a lot of good work done, but it, it might not necessarily generalize to the larger picture if we're not actually doing some level of work with partners or friends or family members or just people who are safe in that person's life as well too. So if someone at the moment is, is watching and listening and they have BPD, um, what might you say to them around like seeking treatment? Because I know some of the times it's like um, nothing can help or that like there's that sense of helplessness and hopelessness. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, I guess for anyone who is listening, I would really encourage you to try and challenge those beliefs because there are clinicians out there who really do care, who really are dedicated to helping you understand yourself and your experience and just making things feel a little bit more worthwhile for you. So one of the, as you mentioned that, one of the phrases that comes to mind is a big component that I bring into therapy is creating a life worth living. And so what I mean by that is there's so many things you can do with your life. There's so many variations and components of life but does it feel like it's worth living for you? And if it does, awesome, we're on the right track. But if it doesn't, then maybe that's where we need to get some support in. And it might be just certain areas don't feel like they're necessarily worth living or they don't feel like they're you're living them in the way that you want to live them. And those could be the areas that we work on. So there's so many options and so much capacity and capability to work with someone with BPD, no matter how many times they've been kind of through the system push between different clinicians or family members or friends or partners or whatever it might be, there are options. It's just finding someone who you feel safe with and who you feel like can actually get you and actually want to get you as well too. Mm-hmm. So I definitely encourage anyone who is listening to definitely reach out to any mental health professional who has experience in BPD or personality disorders and start that journey because it can make a huge difference once you just get started and get the ball rolling. Yeah, I think what you said then is just so true is that sometimes when there's a lack of maybe understanding of the diagnosis on either party, Mm. that there is this sense of like being pushed around the system because people don't quite understand how to kind of support you. Yeah, completely. Yeah, that's right. Where to go where somebody actually understands you is actually so important. Yeah, completely. It's so, so common that most people I see with BPD, with complex trauma, come in and they've seen so many different clinicians and so many different places and so many different clinicians with different skills and expertise, which not to say those clinicians didn't do a good job at all. It just means that something was missed here, whether it was a misdiagnosis or whether the client didn't feel safe for whatever reason, or whether the relationship just wasn't where it needed to be. And so there's a lot of factors that could have not gone to plan necessarily, but it doesn't mean that all hope is gone. It just means that 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 particular fit for whatever reason just didn't work out, but there's so many more options as well, locally as well as externally too. Yeah. So if this is probably a big question, so break it down however you need to, right? But um, look, we always talk about tools and strategies, and I know it's quite a broad spectrum of things that kind of people are managing and navigating, but is Mm. there any specific like tool or thing that you could give someone to kind of take away and just start doing today that might just 
might just help them alleviate some of the the stress or the pain or whatever it is that they're experiencing? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess there's there's like a million things that come to mind for me. Um, so I'm just trying to think of it something that just feels practical and achievable as well too. Um, what I would probably consider looking at is trying to understand ourselves. So learning who we are and who we want to be and who how we want to show up in the world is a massive thing to do. It's actually, it's not something that we're genetically wired to do. It's not something that we're necessarily always taught through our childhood, through our upbringing as well too. But learning who we are and learning who we want to be is really important. And that can allow us to one, identify who, what our triggers are, identify two, who our safe people are, um, identify the areas that we are doing really well in life and, and also the areas that we want some extra support in. So even though it sounds like, I guess it is quite vague, but just learning who we are, learning what our interests are, learning what we like, learning what we don't like, building that sense of self, learning what our hobbies are, um, learning what we find to be quite upsetting, learning what is easy for us and what's more challenging for us. Just developing that kind of sense of self, developing our identity can make such a big difference. And then taking that and then taking that agency, I guess that we spoke about earlier, and choosing to do something with it. And it's always, I guess, that choice. And I guess that's a really key point to highlight that even after you learned about yourself, it's not just going to, you know, nothing's going to happen overnight necessarily, but you can make the choice, then seek the right supports. You can look at therapy if that's the right thing for you. You can look at social groups if that's the right thing for you. You can look at um, hobbies like music or art or sport or anything like that, if that's the right avenue for you. So you can kind of take your next steps once you actually kind of figure out who you are and who you want to be, how you want to make your life worth living as well too. And so those questions like, Simple things like when you're having a glass, of, a cup of tea, what do I like about this tea? Do, do I like the temperature? Do I like the taste of it? Um, is it steeped too much? Is it too light? Those questions that seem really simple will actually allow us to connect with that reflective part of ourselves and actually allow us to be like, wait, maybe I don't even like tea. Maybe I just have been having tea because that's what people do or coffee because that's what people tell you you're supposed to have in the morning. Maybe I don't even want it. I don't even like it or need it. And it's those little moments in the day that we can be like, wait, hold on, who am I here? What do I want to be here? How do I want to show up for myself in this moment here? And things like that, or even just things like um, with work, like what do I really, or school or study, what do I really enjoy about it? What are the areas that I don't particularly enjoy? Is this something I want to continue to pursue just in the short term? And by short term, literally in the next few days, the next week, we don't have to start thinking about massive career shifts. We just start thinking about the next 24 hours even. What do I want to do in the next 24 hours? So those little questions we can kind of ask ourselves about who am I? What do I want to do? And what do I want to be here can help us to connect with who we actually are and our capacity and abilities in those moments too. I I love that for so many reasons because I what came into my mind when you were talking then was just this permission to be curious about who you are mm. and I think not just with BPD but I think with lots of mental health we come from this place of like judgment and criticism right yeah completely yeah and you just opened it up to like well nothing's right or wrong it's just an exploration of self yeah that's exactly it like I'll I'll say to clients a lot like if I'll point to a chair in, in our therapy room and be like 
tell me one thing you like about it and tell me one thing you don't. And I'm not going to be offended. I didn't make the chair, so I really don't care. But I want to know what you feel. I want to know what you think about it. I want to know what your experience of it is. And like we go with something as basic as just the, the chair that's beside us of what do you like? Do you like the color? Do you like the size of it? Do you like the height of it? Do you like the wood planks at the bottom? Do you dislike those? And it's just exactly as you said, learning to be curious about ourselves and our experience it's so overlooked about what we actually feel or think about a situation, but it's so, so important. And if we give ourselves the chance, we can maybe feel like we're actually worthy of someone else giving us a chance of learning more about ourselves and our relationships too. Yeah. Beautiful. So this probably actually leads beautifully into a question that I like to ask everybody who comes on, which is, you know, if you think about the concept of living shamelessly human, like what would that mean to you? That's a really good question. I really like that term shamelessly human because it it highlights that we are human at the end of the day. And a lot of the time we see people want to be what I often I often say to people, like, as long as you're a human, like there's going to be issues as long as until you become a robot. Let me know when you do. But until you become a robot, we're still going to have some of these challenges. And I love that you say that because it implies that there there is that human aspect in all of us that sometimes I feel like we forget about. But I guess someone who's shamelessly human, what I would, what I would envision when I see someone who is shamelessly human is someone who respects themselves, someone who cares about themselves, knows their sense of worth, or at least is wanting to learn more about their sense of self and their sense of worth. Um, someone who takes autonomy over their choices and their decisions, someone who has that agency or wants to learn to develop that agency and accountability and ownership over themselves, being able to connect with your needs, being able to connect with what you want, again, what you like, what you're interested in, how to foster those things. Um, really just having, yeah, that curious nature and that, that lack of, that lack of shame of, you know, I'm, I'm just a human here and I'm doing the best I can. And I always kind of hold that perspective that everyone's doing the best they can with the resources they have. And so even when we go back to the, the invalidating or the traumatic environments, the, the caregivers or the parents, generally more often than not, were probably doing the best they could with the resources that they had. And so if we take that perspective into being shamelessly human, it is doing the best you can with the resources you have. And they might be a thousand resources or they might be two resources. And either way, it's doing what you can with them. So it's having healthy relationships with the resources you can. It's having self-care with the resources you can. It's seeking the right supports professionally and personally. It's taking time for rest and recovery and curiosity and making mistakes and being okay with making mistakes because they're part of being human rather than being filled with criticism or judgment or shame or harshness as well. So I love when I get to see people being shamelessly human. It's my favorite part of the work we do and I hope that the education that we're talking about today can at least hopefully allow even a couple of people to feel more human and feel more connected to themselves and feel more just heard and seen. That's perfect. Thank you so much for sharing that. Of course. Thank you so much for the question. Is there anything else you would like to share before we kind of finish our chat? Yeah. So I guess there's there's a lot of options of different treatment approaches that folks can like and so you mentioned asked before um, what do people kind of how do we get people to the point of getting that kind of support so I guess it's also thinking about do people like that kind of really concrete stuff 
Like, do they want to kind of learn specific skills and strategies and how to approach situations? If so, DBT could be a really good option. Or do they want to look at um, the getting less upset or less triggered or less um, heightened in situations? So maybe EMGR or some inner child work could be um, the, the approach that someone chooses to go on. But I guess any of those questions would be answered by learning who we are and learning kind of about that that part, those parts of ourselves that what do we want to get out of this work? What are the outcomes we're actually looking for, which can then guide our choices. Mm-hmm. So I guess a lot of it will come back to just learning who we are. And so for whoever is listening today, I guess I would invite you to just learn something new about yourself today. That could be, again, what kind of tea you like. That could be what you want to have for dinner and maybe trying a new recipe. That could be Um, tomorrow on your drive to work or study, trying to take a different route and seeing how you feel about that. If it feels comfortable, it feels safe for you, or if you feel like you like the normal route that you go on because that's your routine and that's what feels best for you. And in the next 24 hours, if you feel okay to just try to do something new and try to, it doesn't have to be, again, a huge career change. It's just those small little things that allow you to learn that new extra piece of information about yourself. Awesome. So could you, before you go, can you just share it again about um, your business? Because I know that you do stuff online and you've got your bricks and mortar business as well. So can you just let, because I think you're a great resource for people watching. Yeah, of course. So yeah, so we're Hashbert Psychology. So we have um, a couple of other clinicians, including psychologists and counselors um, in various stages of training and expertise. And so our three areas are BPD that we work in, trauma and LGBTQI community. Um, So yeah, we are at the center of Wollongong. We also do our DBT groups are currently online. Um, In the new year, I do hope to uh, create some face-to-face groups again for the local community as well. But right now we're just running online groups. So we run a variation of five-week programs as well as 10-week programs, uh, just depending on the time of the year that we're doing. Right now we're doing a five-week group at the moment and we're about halfway through. Um, But yeah, we do, of course, individual therapy. Um, We do, I personally do assessments. So even if I don't have capacity to see a client longer term, I'll see them for a couple of sessions to, if they want to, of course, to provide them with a diagnosis, whether it's BPD, complex trauma or something else. And then I can kind of guide them to those next steps and suggest some recommendations um, of what they should do, who they should see, what kind of approaches I'd suggest to do. So we do those kind of assessments and the shorter term based things. Um, And just recently, over the last couple of weeks, we started to implement ADHD assessments as well, too. So that's something that's very new to the practice, something that we've worked all year on trying to um, get up and running. So we're finally there. And that's something we're doing for both children and adults. So we're doing a few different things of individual therapy, uh, diagnoses and assessments, ADHD assessments, um, the group therapy. And in the new year, we are hoping to bring in autism assessments as well, too in addition to the ADHD ones as well. So that's our next step and our next goal that we're working on at the moment. So if people wanted to keep up to date then with what you're doing and the autism assessments in the new year, you're on social media as well? We are. So we're on Instagram and Facebook. So you can just search Hashword Psychology. We post usually two to three times a week there about different educational things. So if you do take a look at our platforms, you'll see for example, skills like mindfulness exercises, breathing exercises. Um, there was a really great post recently about um, 
that one of our colleagues had written. So, which is why I think is really great. <laughs> so it wasn't written by me, but it was written by one of our psychologists about different strategies for procrastination um, and kind of why we procrastinate and how to actually overcome some of that. So some really hopefully educational resources there that you can take a look at every yeah, two or three days, you'll see a new post there, um, as well as posts of what we're doing, when our uh, assessments are coming up, what our availability is looking like, and when our next intake group for the for the DBT groups are. So yeah, you can look at us on Instagram or Facebook, um, or you can also just shoot us an email at any point if you want any information. Our best email address is connect, that's C-O-N-N-E-C-T, at hashworthpsychology.com.au. And we've got our admin team as well as our clinicians who can access that and answer any questions any folks have as well too. Thank you. I've really, really enjoyed talking with you and learning more about BPD. So I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much, Sky. It's been such a great opportunity to be here. And I'm really glad that you, yeah, that you initiated this. And thank you so much for it. All right, see you. Thanks, have awesome. a good night. You as well, see ya. Bye.